Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. It's always a delight to talk to people who are passionate about what they do. Dr. Sylvia Hodges Silverstein is such a person. She researches, teaches, and speaks on purchasing decisions and change in the legal industry. She's the CEO of Buying Legal Counsel, which supports professionals tasked with sourcing legal services and legal tech through education, research, and advocacy. Their mission is to advance the field of buying legal services and legal tech by sharing intelligence and best practices on how to buy and manage supplier relationships. Sylvia is the editor of the Legal Procurement Handbook and has authored two Harvard Business School case studies on legal procurement and the legal industry. She's also taught management at Columbia Law School and Fordham Law School. Our conversation covered a number of interesting topics. As you might expect, we talked about how Sylvia's journey from marketing for an Italian law firm led to her interest and expertise in procurement. But we also talked about the evolution of procurement's role in buying legal services and the ongoing struggle between lawyers and procurement professionals. In addition, you'll learn Sylvia's view on which pricing model is least used by in-house counsel and the reason why. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Sylvia. How are you? Good, Stephen. How are you? Good. Thank you for making some time to chat with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored. Uh, Well, I'm delighted to chat with you. I've sort of followed your career over the years, and uh, you've just done some fascinating things. So I'm looking forward to uh, the conversation. Let's start by talking about the Buying Legal Council, of which you are the CEO and have been for eight years. Eight years, yes. Time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Time does fly. Although in the pandemic world, time is a a more difficult concept to get your head around, I think. It certainly is. But I have to tell you, I feel like for us who've already had established ourselves in in the business world or in the legal industry, I think it was easier to work remotely than for all the, the young kids, whether you look at high schoolers or college kids or those in law school. I think for them, it was much worse than I suspect for you and or, or me. You know, I think that's an interesting observation. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, particularly when you're forced to do it on such short notice, you can draw on the existing relationships and the technology doesn't interfere with pre-existing relationships. But for high school kids, college, particularly those people going to college for the first year, law school for the first year, that just had to be a really challenging environment for them. Absolutely. And when I think about, um, I know this is not the topic that we wanted to discuss today, but when I think about how you learn when you're in an environment, you're immersed, you have conversations with people, you see people working a certain way and and some that you really like and others where you're like, okay, maybe that's not an example I want to follow. So I, I think that it will be really interesting, this whole remote work, how this, what effects that will have long-term also really on the, on, on the whole industry, because I suspect that some of the learning will be lost. Of course, technology is wonderful and, and allows us to live in interesting places uh, where there might have not been the same work opportunities. But at the same time, I really wonder, uh, and I don't think that, that we will see the, the sort of the effects of this for probably the next five or 10 years down the road. I think that's right. Now, you, you teach at a variety of law schools. How did it affect your teaching 
Well, so I actually stopped teaching with COVID. So I like to like lots of New Yorkers. I actually left New York and I have not been uh, back in, in, in uh, Manhattan since uh, December of 2019. So I cannot tell you really how it affects uh, the law students because I used to work as an adjunct faculty member at uh, both Columbia Law School and, and Fordham Law School, where I taught uh, law students about business and management and so on. But quite frankly, I stopped with COVID. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's circle back around to the buying legal counsel. I suspect many of our listeners are familiar, but some may not be. So what is the buying legal counsel? What does it do? Who are its stakeholders? What's its mission? Yeah, no, thank you so much for asking. So yes, so I'm the, the CEO of the Buying Legal Council, which is the Educational Institute for Buying Legal Services and Legal Technology and the professional home for legal procurement professionals. And we support those tasked with sourcing legal services and managing supplier relationships, mostly through education, insights, and sharing best practices. And as I said, you know, I worked as a, an adjunct faculty member uh, for basically a decade. And before actually for four years, I worked uh, full time as a, as a faculty member. So the um, educational aspect comes, you know, very, uh, what can I say, it's a, a natural thing for me. And I authored and edited a number of books on, on buying legal services, such as the Definitive Guide to Buying Legal Services and the Legal Procurement Handbook. And we also published a book for law firms on how to win work. It's called Winning Proposals. And that sort of sums up what we do with the with the Buying Legal Council, really trying to make buyers more sophisticated and, and make them better understand what the purchasing of legal services and legal tech is about. At the same time, we try to help those on the other side to make them understand what it is that uh, procurement professionals want and how, as I said with this one book, The Winning Proposal, how they can still win work even when there are a complete a different set of people on the other side. Because as you know, really until the, the 2008 recession, it was pretty much only the general counsel and the legal department who bought legal services, but then it really changed. And I, I can tell you about that in a moment, how, how I found that out or, or how I got involved. But I actually also wrote a, um, two Harvard Business School case studies, including the only case study on, at least as far as I know, the only case study on professional services procurement it's called uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the sourcing complex professional services. And what I really describe is the journey that GlaxoSmithKline took and particularly their, their sourcing department, how they started to get involved and use data and, and use uh, RFPs left, right and center and demand AFAs. And so it really, you know, sort of changed the marketplace. But it all started out when, uh, for me, when I started in the legal industry 20 some years ago, I worked in law firm marketing in Italy of all places. And I, I saw that. That had to be fascinating. It was. It was. It was absolutely. It was a wonderful time in, in Milano. So I was one of the first law firm marketing professionals uh, then. And when my managing partner asked me to do things, I was like, well, is that what the client wants? Or what does the client actually think about this? And uh, there was a lot of, well, um, I guess, you know, 
Well, I mean, I, I suppose we, we had a lot of assumptions about what clients wanted. And so I thought, you know, we really need to understand how, how clients actually bought legal services. So I launched the first research on, on how companies in different European countries bought legal services and, and compared and contrasted their approaches. So I looked at the Italian market, of course. I looked at the German market. I looked at the French market as well as the UK market. And this then led to other research that I did, uh, such as on how American companies bought international legal services. Then I dug even deeper. I guess I couldn't get enough and, and literally wrote my PhD on the top with Steve Mason uh, in the UK. And I had interviewed hundreds of GCs and CEOs and CFOs on how they bought legal services until in 2010. That might have been the year that, that we also met. I was at a legal tech conference in New York and I ran into a procurement manager from GlaxoSmithKline who was involved in buying legal services. And I can tell you, I was quite surprised that procurement professionals were involved in buying legal services. But then I started to research. I just come out of my uh, out of my PhD research, so I was like reading everything that I could get my hands on. So I started to read about other professional service procurement, and you know, sometimes in your life you see something that other people might not see, and it's not like the da da like in a movie, but you know, it, it's sort of a, a light bulb went on, and I, I was just so sure that what had happened in other, they call it categories, you know, such as financial services or human resources or strategic management consulting and so on. So what had happened there in the past, in the 10, 20 years prior to, to 2010, what was going on there, I was convinced that was go going to be happening in legal as well. So I knew then, or I was pretty sure, that professional buyers would be involved in buying legal services. They would compare and use data, run RFPs, negotiate, and, and, and so on. Let's talk a little bit about that transition, because being old myself, I can remember the pre-recession days where legal services were bought by the general counsel's office. Absolutely. Through relationships, sometimes RFPs. When I worked, I tell you, when, when I worked in uh, 2002 to about 2007, when I worked in, they, they, RFPs were hardly, like, like they, they, law firm marketers were almost ashamed of if they got an RFP from that client because it meant that, you know, their firm might not have been as special and as different as uh, the lawyers would have wanted to think. And so, yes, it was a totally different world. And then procurement began to become involved, as, as you point out, during the recession. But my recollection is there's a fair amount of jockeying between the legal department and procurement department for responsibility for negotiating and procuring legal services. It was, it was not the easiest transition. Oh, tell me. <laughs> tell me about it. I don't, I don't know if I'm still a pariah, but I can tell you that when I started first, uh, let me take a step back because I feel like I, I made enemies with two different groups. So first of all, so when I kind of concluded that the procurement was going to be involved, that made me quite unpopular with the partners and law firms. And I remember I was speaking at a few managing partner conferences in New York and they didn't quite pelt me with tomatoes, but... <laughs> Metaphorically, they probably did. Yeah, they probably did, or they wish they did. But yeah, again, I mean, they didn't quite boo me off of stage, but they definitely 
try to play devil's advocate as, as we know that lawyers love to do that and and then you know ask me all these questions and sort of try to tell me why what I said was wrong but as I said yeah so I, uh, let, let me go down this route for one sec I'm gonna go back to the legal operations uh, or the legal department in a second but so the, the thing with the with the law firms was that so I continued and 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 uh, researched uh, what was going on and I found some little pockets of industries uh, in particular so pharmaceutical industry insurances big banks and so on they started to have legal procurement professionals and it was typically during the recession that the CFOs looked at the expenses and then suddenly it's like how much are we spending for outside legal services this number is too big and so it was like the legal department was was tapped on the shoulder by by the the finance department and said you know what we have some new friends and colleagues for you here our army from from legal procurement and they will help you now although the push i recall at that time was yeah that's what they were told but the lawyers in the legal department were pushing back and going we're special you don't understand anything about buying legal services etc cetera, etc cetera. How did they work through that? It's still a work in progress. So uh, as you said, in, in many corporations, legal services used to be more or less exempt from, from the cost-cutting, cost-scrutiny that, that pretty much all other business units and functions had been facing for years uh, prior to the, the Great Recession. But yeah, as, as you saw in the last uh, uh, 10, 12 years since then, we have seen that the legal departments and, and now with the part of that legal operations are just no longer the only buyers of legal services. Of course, the, the general counsel and uh, and the senior in-house lawyers, they will continue and they should be. I really want to uh, f- confirm this. They should remain the decision makers because, I mean, in the end, they need to work with those outside counsel and, and so on. But you now have, or we now have procurement involved in this. And I would say this, this whole thing would have happened anyways. But in a way, the financial crisis, I see it sort of as a catalyst that sped up the, the process of adoption of legal procurement. And it was really this publicity about billing practices that was, I remember there, there were articles in the legal press and beyond that said, where clients sued well-known law firms, where it said, this bill shall know no limits and so on. You might recall that one. I do recall that. Yeah, you know, big ticket spending and then increased transparency with e-billing that that started, you know, around that time to really take off. We suddenly had insights into how much something that actually did cost. It was not just a sort of a shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, we don't know how much something costs. And I know that your firm did a lot in, in AFAs. So, you know, all about that. And yeah, and, and, and profit pressure was, was sort of at the root of this whole development. And uh, what we saw was that the companies that with significant legal spend, they were the first ones to, uh, to involve procurement in, in this evaluation and selection of legal service providers in as early as the early to mid 2000s. And I actually found one lady in a company in Michigan. She was actually involved in buying legal services in the mid to late 1990s. And she wrote a lovely article that said, I bought the law. (laughs) She was a lawyer by training who then worked for two, three years in procurement. And I think she's now retired, but you know, she went from legal to procurement and then back. But in a way, procurement was seen by, by legal for the longest time as the last frontier, a very challenging intimidating category with very prickly 
to say the least, uh, subjects there. And so, so that sort of, to some extent, the, the reluctance of the legal department has calmed down a lot. But quite frankly, I think that there is still a lot of fiefdom defense going on. And I would say in 2022 that we have now, it's less about the legal department itself. But what I still see is that there is some, let's say, some improvement that could be made between legal procurement and and, uh, legal operations. You're talking about managing change through legal procurement in the organizational development. How do you provide assistance to your stakeholders to help educate them on how to manage that change dynamic, those organizational issues? Yeah, um, and it's very interesting because, you know, when you look at procurement, they have so many different, they, they call it categories and legal uh, is one of them. So they have a tendency to have sort of a cost savings playbook. And ideally, from their perspective, they use that sort of approach for all the different categories. And as you and I know, that doesn't necessarily work with legal. I mean, it's much harder to compare services than uh, to products and professional services are even harder to to compare and, and to do the quality checks and so on. But it is possible. And when we look at which or what kind of tools procurement often use, it is definitely very often discounts play a big, big role. And it's sort of like people say, well, if you have a hammer in, in your in your toolbox and that's your only tool, then, you know, every problem looks like a nail. Whereas what we are trying to do is with our learning program. So we have an onboarding program. We have a certificate for, for legal procurement, uh, for, on a legal procurement fundamentals. We have checklists. We have cheat sheets, primers, hundreds of videos. We have a mini law school because, you know, most of them procurement professionals, they have a quantitative background. So most of them have uh, studied maybe finance or accounting or something like that. So they have a totally different mindset. And clearly, they have something that's interesting and needed. But as you know, if you don't use the right terminology, when you're at the table with lawyers, you quickly dismissed as not knowing anything. And so we even have, as I said, a mini law school, case studies, templates, you name it. And what our goal really was from the beginning is to educate buyers about what's different or not when, when buying legal services and really to have a constructive and call me naive, but I do think that we need to strive for a win-win. A zero-sum game has never worked in, in my opinion. So we're really trying to look for a useful dialogue between buyers and sellers. And that's really, you know, the approach that we, that we take so that discounts cannot be the only tool that they use. Let's follow that thread a little bit. Listen, we've had this conversation in the legal industry for years about the billable hours being the basis for pricing and discounts being the only thing people care about and that whole structure. From your perspective, how many different types of pricing arrangements are now being used truly as opposed to just billing by the hour, whether it's flat fees or portfolio pricing or whatever it may be? How much is actually happening now? that wasn't maybe happening 10 years ago? So I think 10 years ago, we we still had this discussion if AFAs are possible and if we should have them. 
why why is not everything I, I mean it kind of depends on the the company or the industry or the practice area as you know in some companies have shifted almost all their matters to afas and some industries have more and some some practice areas use more so i mean we don't we don't do any rate benchmarking but all the webinars or re- researchers that i have seen recently they definitely clearly show that that afas have grown in, 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 in almost everywhere. But let me take a step back and say, why why is it still that we have so much discounts? Or why, why is procurement still sort of seen as, well, these are the, the people who want discounts? When procurement is involved, is typically tasked with negotiating the price for legal services. And the thing is that the issue is that, that people will behave according to the incentives they're, they're, they get or they, they give them. So let's say if your goal was to produce a really long podcast here, because really long podcasts are most popular with your audience, that's what you'd go for, right? Instead of talking for, I don't know, half an hour. I mean, you and I could easily talk for another three or four hours, maybe five. Maybe. I think so. If, on the other hand, your audience preferred really short podcasts, well, you probably would take a different uh, approach and we might already be done. So it really depends. I, I tell you, years ago, I digress, but years ago, I was a, I was a journalist and I was paid by the line. So what do you think? W- were my articles long or short? I think they're probably pretty long. They were all really long. And I was paid an extra, it was still, it was in Germany, it was still marks. So I was uh, paid an extra 10 marks for every picture. What do you think? Did I give them lots of pictures? I bet you did. I did. I had at least three or four pictures with every article. I'm like, yeah, this looks good. And this looks good too. Anyways, I mean, you get, you get my, my point. So if procurement is remunerated based on how large of a discount they were able to negotiate with their firms, with their providers, that's what they go for. This is totally human and understandable. And, and more often than not, that's the situation. But so uh, in, in our last uh, legal procurement survey, we, we asked actually which pricing models were most frequently used. So the, the most frequently used pricing models were fixed fees, mm-hmm. rate discounts, capped fees, and blended rates. On the other hand, I, I have two more things for you that you might find interesting. So on the other hand, the least frequently used pricing models, do you want to take a guess? Portfolio pricing, I would guess. Yeah, let, let's say that the more, the more, I would call it to some extent, a little bit more complex ones, the flat fees with shared savings, contingency fee arrangements, because I mean, I guess you can't really put in a number, it would be either really high or really low, bundling fee arrangements. And packaged fee arrangements, so your portfolio. So yes, yeah, so anything where where is really it doesn't really help so much with them to to actually put a, a, a number down. Yeah, those don't surprise me because they are, as you point out, they're more complex pricing agreements that require some sophisticated data to understand. You're projecting forward what the workload is going to be to try to come up the pricing, and not every company has that data at their fingertips. Right. And I mean, again, it comes down to how are they incentivized, right? As, as we discussed. And I think those are issues that need to be addressed. I would say a pay grade above legal procurement itself that needs to be done by the, the company leadership, because otherwise we will see that because I asked them what their most favorite uh, pricing models were. And they were, in fact, volume discounts, fixed fees and straight discounts. 
which might be a little bit disappointing, but um, that's that's exactly that's exactly the reason for that. No, that's interesting. Let's go down another uh, a line. The other change in the last ten to fifteen years is the growth of different service providers in the legal space. It's now if I go back twenty years ago, law firms were competing with law firms and buyers were buying legal services from law firms. Now you have law firms, you've got the big four, you've got alternative legal service providers, you've got law companies, you've got tech companies, you have this proliferation of service providers, which depending on how you disaggregate the buy could be used in conjunction with one another or alternative sources. How has legal procurement kept up with that change in the in the market and how does buying legal counsel help move that process forward? Yeah, so the ALSPs or law companies or new law, whatever you want to call them, they are quite popular with legal procurement professionals. These types of uh, organizations focus on leveraging people, process and technology, as we know, and uh, which makes them particularly cost effective for anything that's high volume, that's repetitive. And so that is very appealing for procurement professionals. This type of approach is used in in, in, in other professional services. So it I would say it really is something that makes a lot of sense for procurement and, and matches their own MO, if you will. So one of the things that the procurement sees as its main task is to really understand what's happening in the market, to really research, you know, gather the business intelligence, who's out there, what are the providers, what are the special pros and cons, what are they, what are they able to provide and what might be the pricing and so on. And so, or pricing models. So I think it's, it's quite unsurprising that legal procurement professionals definitely want to hire ALSPs for areas like litigation and investigation support and legal research and doc review and e-discovery and regulatory risk and compliance and so on. So one more thing, I mean, because these, quote, new law firms, they are heavy, heavy on the tech side. And a lot of the uh, legal procurement professionals, they bought IT services before illegal services. I want to point this out because sometimes I hear those procurement professionals, they buy uh, paper clips. So I actually asked in, a, in one of my last conferences pre-COVID, I actually asked the audience, I said, please raise your hand if you bought paper clips in the last year. No hand went up. <laughs> in the last five years who bought paper clips, no hand went up. And then I said, come on, some of you must have bought paper clips, uh, fess up. And, and I said, so who, who did it in the last 10 years? And then one hand went up. And so anyway, so, so lots of these legal procurement professionals, they, they bought tech before buying legal services. And for them, it's just technology applied to legal. So it's, it's very, how can I say, very, very natural. And uh, they, they typically... And again, we, we did a study on, on that, you know, which ones are the most frequently used legal tech tools. And I guess it's no surprise. It's contract management software, e-billing software, meta management software, e-discovery software, and, and uh, reporting and analytics tools. Yeah. And some of the more emerging technologies, it's interesting you talk about the background of the procurement folks, because some of the emerging technologies outside of the ones you list, and contract management is a real pain point for many companies. 
e-billing, et cetera. They talk about some of the difficulties of selling into the legal side of the business from finding the right budget to finding people who understand the technology. Are they going at it the wrong way by going after the lawyers? Are they missing an opportunity here by not figuring out a way to get to procurement who have the tech background? How do you advise those entities as to how to sell into these bigger organizations? So I think that's actually a really good point that you're making, Stephen, because I mean, on the one hand, it's like who should buy it? And I definitely think that procurement should be involved. One point that I wanted to make before also, you know, is when we talked about legal procurement and legal ops, I think that they have quite different jobs. I mean, legal operations is the function that is supposed to help the the general counsel run the legal department. That's legal ops's job, not legal procurement. Legal procurement is, is there to help pick the right providers and then manage the relationship with those providers. And it's, it's like, you know, when you have a problem with your foot, Stephen, you don't go to the cardiologist, to the neurologist, you go to the podiatrist. So I, I think for that, it's like, you know, legal ops doesn't have to worry about that. But you, uh, that, that's just one point, the picking. And I definitely think that procurement should be used and helped. And if they don't, if they've never bought legal services, well, you know, send them to us. <laughs> We're happy to help them uh, <laughs> on board and, and better understand how to do this. But the, the other thing, the other point that you're making, I think that is really the almost more crucial point is the adoption. And here I had a really interesting conversation with a, a friend that I hadn't spoken with in a while and, and he works on the on the law school side. And I think that the problem starts really early. I think that there are so many things that need to be changed in the way we teach our young lawyers. I have a 2L in law school right now. And I tell you, I mean, the way he's taught, it's like, my friends were taught, you know, in the 1990s. So it's like, God, I should have moved on. So, and I, I tell you, so when I was teaching at Columbia, I had the two L's and three L's in my course. And it was, they were so different night and day. There's something in the summer between the two uh, L and three L happens. At least it did when, 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 you know, when I used to teach, I don't know if it's changed in the meantime, but they suddenly came back like old men and women looking for their paneled office. I don't know <laughs> in the summer with them. Seriously, I think that there needs to be a change done at in the law school, what they teach, but then also how the law firms behave. And I mean, I know that everyone wants the best one. Everyone wants the, the best student from Harvard and Yale and, you know, what whatnot. But the thing is, there is something going wrong in that summer between second and, and third year. And because their expectations are, are set. And I just think whatever is happening there could be improved. I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the legal education system. No, no question about it. I know we've run over our time, but I have one last question for you. You've written a couple of business cases. You, you mentioned one, the uh, GlaxoSmithKline case study, but you also wrote one on Riverview Law. I did, yes. I, I, I'm just interested in a, now that's a number of years ago. I suspect this was pre-acquisition, Riverview? Oh, I tell you something really funny with that. So I was at a conference and the head of uh, E&Y Legal, very, I, I really like him a lot. But at the time, I didn't know him. So, so he walked towards me and I'm like, oh, yes, hello. And he, he put himself in front of me and said, yeah. And I said, okay. 
And he said, um, well, I just answered your case study um, because basically I, I'd ask in the case study, you know, where, where I discussed Riverview Law, a, a startup legal services firm, that it was run like a business rather than a traditional law firm. And it wanted to, that's the, the situation that we had, wanted to expand its, its concept to the U.S. And, and we sort of tell a story through the eyes of, of a U.S. lawyer uh, that, that Riverview uh, it was a fictional person, okay? So no need to look her up on on LinkedIn, <laughs> right? To to recruit her and this 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 case sort of profile. In this case, we was, we we profiled the Riverview laws. Then very unusual approach, including that they performed legal work for annual fixed price contracts that they use data and analytics to advise clients on, on ways how to how they could reduce their legal problems and their legal spend and they evaluated uh, lawyers performance based on client satisfaction services rather than traditional metrics like like build revenues and anyway so my last question that we asked in this case study was sort of like would you invest in this business and so he said yeah i bought it (laughs) 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 i love that it was (laughs) that's fabulous that's a great story well, Sylvia, we've we've run out of time. I want to thank you so much for your time and the engaging conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This was great fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And for those folks that want to find more about buying legal counsel, we'll put a link in the show notes. But would you give them the website? Yes, the website is buyinglegal.com. And I really look forward to meeting you all and either teaching you about how to better buy legal services or we'll tell you how to better work with those buyers of legal services that are all about data and about analytics. But I do think it can be a good dialogue. So let's have that dialogue. Look forward to it. Thanks, Sylvia. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much for inviting me, Stephen. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.